Fletcher's conversion from true blue UFO believer to alien invasion skeptic was evidence that at his best, he was really capable of changing his mind. It's such a missed opportunity. If he had just gone a bit further, he might have considered how crazy his whole conspiracy worldview was. Just think what an impact he would have had focusing on his key insight that apathy, tribalism, and lack of real engagement with the challenge of citizenship was killing the country he loved. He was enraged that his fellow Americans were distracted by racism and other dog whistles blown by slick, self-dealing conmen. But unfortunately, when he rejected aliens as an explanation, He just steered into a new, all-encompassing conspiracy theory, accompanied naturally by a fantastic, unverifiable real-life encounter. I've told this story many times now, but I know that each broadcast is someone's first. So briefly, a scientist came to my hotel room. He flashed his government credentials. This was when I was on the UFO speaking circuit. He said he knew I had seen the government documents, but he was there to show me proof that I had been deliberately deceived. He asked permission to open his briefcase. After giving him fair warning that I was armed, I agreed. Out of that case emerged a hum. The rose to a whine. Suddenly, a perfect miniature flying saucer rose under its own power, hovering a foot or so below the ceiling. It was a neat trick. I was about to tell him so, when in a flash and a crack of ozone, the saucer disappeared. It simply evaporated. Needless to say, he had my attention.
Fletcher's sudden turnaround caught the UFO community by surprise, to say the least. He had become one of their biggest rising stars, and suddenly he turned on them, labeling them all with one of his favorite epithets, sheeple, and insisting they accept the new story he supposedly received from this mysterious saucer-summoning scientist. And that version was this. The U.S. obtained anti-gravity technology from the Nazi scientists they captured after the war. scientists acknowledged that they were still trying to determine what made the objects disappear, but they had narrowed it down to some sort of time travel, though they weren't sure whether the objects using this technology disappeared into the past or the future. To provide cover for these experiments, of course, the CIA cooked up the entire conspiracy that Fletcher had previously believed and ensured that individuals like him were exposed to these manufactured secrets to keep them all off the trail of the real story. That's right, folks. No aliens. I'm not saying there aren't any out there in the vast reaches of interstellar space. All the unholy bargain between our government and little green men. That was all the smokescreen by the real powers behind the scenes. Of course, the UFO sheeple weren't ready to hear that, but I quickly realized they weren't my real audience. Anymore. I wanted to tell the whole truth, not just poke holes in the UFO story. I I needed to finally write it all down. I wasn't getting any younger, and I never knew when the powers that be might come back for my other leg, or possibly my life. It was time for me to write my magnum opus, the manuscript that would eventually be published as The Red Horse and the Sword. If the MUFON speech was a grenade tossed into the UFO community, it's safe to say that Red Horse and the Sword, Fletcher's published magnum opus, was a tsunami that washed over this entire conspiracist landscape. In the three-plus decades since it was written, it has never been out of print. And that's thanks to Darlene Starguide Buffington, sole owner and proprietor of the Crystal Consciousness Press, which she runs out of the back of an incense store in Bakersfield, California. You know, Fletcher and I didn't start off on the best footing. We tend to put out volumes of alternative healing methodologies, or tantric practices, or techniques for getting in touch with your past lives. We have published a few alternate history books in the past. I'm thinking here mostly of Linda Rimjohn Kahili Swanson's four-volume work, Tracing the Civilization and Tragic Disappearance of the Amphibious Human-Salamander Hybrid Race, 
it once dominated what we now call the Great Lakes. I see that skeptical look on your face, but their pottery is fascinating. The only real reason I decided to publish Red Horse in the first place was some advice I'd heard on the then popular AM radio show Love Chat with Enmen Durana. Good evening. Welcome to another episode of Love Chat, where we help you solve all of your relationship troubles. There's no issue that's too small. And once again, we have with us the Sumerian god king Enmen Durana, as channeled through Into the Gate for Wide is the Gate. And broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Yes. And many there be which go in threat. Because the straight is the gate and the narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. The few there will find it. Th- thank you. And and the first cry for help that we have is from Jake in Springfield, Illinois. Jake writes in that he's been married for five years, but before he got married, he had a couple of affairs before he ever dated his first wife. He doesn't know if he should reveal this to her, or if it's lying to keep it from her. Any any thoughts on that, God King? My rage boils like a cauldron of molten lava, ready to unleash destruction upon the unworthy mortals who dare defy my will. What I'm hearing you suggest is that, through that language, that maybe you don't take such a forceful action and actually let her know about indiscretions that weren't actually indiscretions because you'd never met before. Our next letter comes from Joan Smith in Salt Lake City. She's said that she's been approached by a man who already has two wives and wants her to become a sister wife. Do you have any old-fashioned thoughts on a best course of action for for someone wanting to join in with sister wives in a, a new bout of polygamy in Salt Lake City? I am in Durana, am furious with my followers. They have not offered enough blood to appease my wrath, and now they shall face my fierce divine punishment. This last letter comes from a listener named Starguide who has a small publishing company and wants to know if it's a good idea to publish a book that she's not very interested in. It's not something she would normally publish, but it has the promise of revealing horrible secrets about a universe-spanning conspiracy to control the minds of men. I am Ender Anna, the raging god of war, smite my faithless worshippers with... Well, yeah, why not? Yeah, let him do it. And on that note, thanks for listening to another episode of Love Chat. We'll see you next week. And you know, that really spoke to me. So, I told Fletcher, you write your manuscript, and I'll get it published. And the rest is history. So I had a publisher willing to take a chance on my book. She turned out to be just as good as her word, except for when it came to paying royalties for the, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of copies sold through underground bookstores. Lord knows I've autographed enough of them over the years. Where's my money, Star Guide? Which reminds me, the profits of every copy you buy directly from us go straight into keeping the show on the air. Where was I? Oh, yes. Before I can even put pen to paper... I had to deal with a more pressing problem, protecting my new wife, the woman who is still the true love of my life, my Julie. You see, the mysterious figures who had haunted me the first time I threatened to reveal what I knew, they had come back. Oh, they were disguised this time, thought they were very clever. Once we were coming home from the Hitchcock matinee at the local art house, Julie moved to the States from Taiwan in her teens and had never seen the classics on the silver screen. As I pulled into the driveway, 
A smiling man emerged from his black sedan and approached us with a clipboard and a pen. Claimed he was a census taker. There was one problem with that story. Census takers don't drive government cars. Census takers don't drive government cars. Makes no sense that they don't know who you are. You pay your taxes and you pay for your home. Why can't they just leave us alone? she keeps in her purse. He got the message. Peeled out. We never had to worry about him again. That's the moment I realized that Julie ably defend herself. So I turned my attention to writing in earnest. We tried like hell to track down this mysterious, not a census agent. But no luck. Maybe that means Fletcher made it all up. But on the other hand, him confronting and raving at some innocent census taker while his wife waves a gun around matches up well with the couple's usual hijinks. Julie wasn't willing to talk to us either, though knowing how things between her and Fletcher ended up, that's not a big surprise. I knew Red Horse was going to be the most important work I had ever done in my life. But as driven as I was to write it, I had no idea the effect it would have on free-thinking individuals around the world. I am proud to know 
that when I die, the first line of my obituary will call me the author of The Red Horse and the Sword. We needed book excerpts for the film that never was, so we obtained a fifth-generation cassette tape audiobook version that was in circulation back in the 90s. I thought it was appropriate, because that was how I first encountered it, back when Fletcher was still this mysterious figure you glimpsed only on dubbed VHS copies of his speeches. Apologies for the tape noise, and the weird masking effect the anonymous reader used. Back in 1954, the war began when a group of powerful men realized that soon the public would be able to use new technologies to throw off the yoke of their dominance. This was, of course, unacceptable. But so was a public display of violence that could rouse the great mass of men from their slumber. What was needed was a subtle, new, inconspicuous kind of war. No tanks, no bombs, no bullets. Just sophisticated computers and algorithms that would subtly alter mass psychology. That would eventually make the sheeple clamor for their masters to take total control. First, they manipulated the economy to create shocks which they then fixed through their economic policy. Repeat a few times and, lo and behold, their experts were given total control of how things are bought and sold in this nation. They waged a quiet war with silent weapons, and they're still doing it today.
it's easy to identify with the mysterious cabal that's growing more powerful every day. After all, they're just giving the people what they want. The average Joes and Janes unconsciously yearn for someone powerful to guide them with a firm hand. They want to know the food will be on the table, the clothes in their closets, to rest warm in their beds, secure in the knowledge that they are cared for. They actively wish to be children of a powerful god. Human gods, who remove confusion and want and choices and freedom. Eliminate their troubles and lead them like a shepherd. Who promise to make everything alright. They don't even need results. The promise itself is the comfort. No wonder then that the politician, assuming the mantle, never keeps his campaign pledges. And what's the result? Who is the citizen of this controlled utopia? A shell of a man, driven by the need to meet arbitrary demands from his masters. A supplicant who will send his most precious treasure, his child, to fight wars for causes he doesn't understand, simply to avoid shame. And because he was told to do it. Reading Red Horse is a real tilt-a-whirl. He's raving about a mysterious, deliberate conspiracy to control the world behind the scenes. And then suddenly, he says something so clear and true that it borders on profound. Think how the true nuggets embedded in the story sounded to those stuck on the margins of society. Do you know that Red Horse is one of the most popular books in prison? It's true. To this day... In the most economically challenged, usually majority-minority neighborhoods, you'll find sidewalk booksellers hawking copies next to the works of Malcolm X and James Baldwin. And, of course, the protocols of the elders of Zion and black Israelite propaganda. We actually interviewed one of those booksellers, a community activist who served some time back in the 90s. I never got his name. He asked us to refer to him as Disciple. Thousands of copies. In fact, everybody on the street knew who he is. They don't call him by name necessarily, though. But check this out. There's a street preacher who used to talk about that book. He used to pull out a copy and say, Man, let's see what that white boy has to say about this. Back in the 90s, you couldn't even call yourself an activist. 
Afrocentric, a gorilla, a radical, all of which I've called myself at one time or another. You couldn't even be in that club if you didn't know the book. That's how much it meant to us, man. We just called it the book. I'll tell you this, though. Look up and down the street, find anybody who's lived here for a minute. I'm not talking about them yuppies who moved in and think they run shit. I mean real neighborhood cats, brothers and sisters, people with Harlem in their blood. Ask them who knows Fletcher, and the book, I guarantee it's most everybody. We actually did this. We conducted a very unscientific survey of the people we met that day on the street, and he was right. The long-term residents, at least most of them, knew exactly who we were talking about. It was remarkable. Why did this one book, whose author had been dead for more than a decade at that point, why did he have such an impact? Disciple was happy to explain. Hey, first I heard about the book was when I was locked up. Man, back then they was putting away any black man they could find just for having a little weed on them. Calling it tough on crime. Shit. I call it making the streets safe for gentrification. I did my time, though, and I kept my head down. I spent every second reading as much as I could. If you were a brother trying to educate yourself inside, shit, the book was the part of the curriculum. You feel me? seventies, doctors began tracking a new, mysterious plague that specifically seemed to target gay men. Soon they discovered it was also killing heroin addicts, and then it started tearing through the black community. wants to get rid of the same undesirables that the ruling class does. And when I was locked down, all over Attica, brothers like me were pouring over that book. It was amazing, man. One white man had finally admitted what we all had knew. That MK Ultra was connected to the CIA, running drugs in inner cities. Remember, man, that AIDS shit was cooked up in a lab to kill us, and the gays and the junkies. Of course, we now know that the deliberate development and deployment of AIDS can be traced back to the mysterious club of Rome, which released this plague into the world too. Thin the herd of humanity, leading a more malleable, controllable, 
smaller population to be ruled over once their plan for domination was fully enacted. Basically, we all know the game was rigged. That the system was designed to control your mind and to destroy you if you talk back. Along with the disease, they also developed the cure, which is waiting in warehouses until the masters decide that a sufficient percentage of so-called excess population has been eliminated. The plan for Africa appears to be wiping out the entire populace, leaving the continent right for colonization. also experimenting with surreptitious radiation and chemical poisoning for similar purposes. Let me put it this way. Marvel James Fletcher was one paranoid white man. And that's why he spoke to us. Black man in this country has a one in four chance of serving some time during his life. For a white man, shit, it's one in 17. A black American male is the most legitimately paranoid human being on this earth. Say what you feel about the brother and how he ended up. When it came to how the game is really played and who the players are, that white boy was fucking woke. After that interview, I read Red Horse and the Sword again, trying to get into the headspace of someone who experienced America the way that disciple had. And when I did, I saw how much of Fletcher's book simply made sense. And of course, that title, the reference to the book of Revelations, certainly went a long way. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. That was one hell of an image for a book appealing to a conspiracist mindset in the 1990s, a decade that was obsessed with the end of the world, with black helicopters, and of course, the New World Order. The separation of powers has already become a fairy tale. Congress has not declared war since 1941. And yet, we've sent our young men to die in combat in one foreign nation after another, decade after decade, like clockwork. Presidents now declare our wars, and increasingly, they make our laws through executive orders. Why? to prepare us for a dictatorship and then the dawning of the new world order. What you must understand, though, is that those who are putting these plans in place, they truly believe they are doing the right thing. They are saving humanity from itself. Want more proof? Look into the Federal Emergency Management Authority. You think it is established to clean up after earthquakes, floods, and fires? Open. Your eyes. They're building underground facilities and concentration camps to take control when the Constitution is suspended. 
It could happen any day now. All we want is control. We don't care how it pulls. Jackboots are out on patrol. Just sign here to enroll. All we are are the
writing the book seems to have put Fletcher in a reflective mood. Julie, either his fifth or sixth wife, it's almost impossible to say how often Fletcher was married, had just given birth to her first child, Fletcher's fourth. After years where he never mentioned his three previous kids, he dedicated Red Horse to all four. He even, unsurprisingly while drunk, called his only son Paul. We managed to track Paul down. He has a new last name, which I won't mention here to protect his privacy. It was a phone interview, and it was brief. Yeah, he called me once. Um, I, I was like 12. He begged my mom to put me on the phone. I had never talked to the guy. Total stranger. He was slurring badly. I could barely make out what he was saying, but he wanted me to know he dedicated his book to me. I said thanks or something, and he blathered for a while about how government cars were following him, and he was leaving California, heading up into the mountains where uh, he had better sight lines for when they came to get him. I was totally confused, but even at that age, I didn't really give a shit. I had a dad. My mom remarried, and he's the one who raised me. Marvell Fletcher and his book, I've got nothing to do with that. From what I understand, it's a sad story, but it's not mine. Listen, my kids are getting wild. I, I gotta go. Good luck with the documentary.
presenting this book in full knowledge that I have already been manipulated by this conspiracy. I was shown evidence of alien interference in our world so that I would spread this disinformation among the Patriot movement. And so if you choose to doubt the warnings I have written here, I cannot help that, and I suppose I cannot blame you. But there is a truth buried in the lies they caused me to see and repeat. However evil their methods, there's one thing they got exactly right. To survive and thrive, humankind must have a paradigm shift. Our culture, our children, our very planet are crying out for all of us to reach a new understanding of this world and our place in it. Let all of us who are fighting this fight keep this in the back of our minds. Humans must remain free, sovereign individuals, but we also must somehow learn to cooperate to survive, and to achieve our manifest destiny. To venture far beyond our home planet, explore the stars, and one day meet those alien intelligences that we feel certain are out there. Red Horse and the Sword is at once a manifesto of paranoia and a very relatable call for the unity of all people. Those two aspects explain its enduring influence. Unfortunately, some of the most prominent people influenced by it would use it to justify horrors in the coming years. Having written it, Fletcher embarked on perhaps the greatest effort of his strange career, one that married his early love of broadcasting with his spiraling paranoia and belief in an all-encompassing conspiracy. And it started when Fletcher got on the radio.